Hello and welcome to True Crime Medieval, 1,000 Years of People Behaving Badly. I'm Ann Brannan, and I'm your host in Albuquerque. And I'm Michelle Butler in, wait, I'm in Tuscaloosa. Yes. <laughs> I forgot there for a second. Because I had this little, you know, intro thing that I, I, have to, I have to adjust. Yeah, 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 me too. <laughs> anyway, where are you now? You're in Tuscaloosa. I am. Yep. You're no longer in the most medieval state in America. Yeah, to the best of my knowledge, there is not a state sport here of jousting. <laughs> it wasn't super random that I called Maryland the most medieval state in America. What with the what with the state flag and the jousting, it felt well justified. But you're not in a medieval state anymore. You're in Alabama. I'm in Tuscaloosa. Tuscaloosa. And I'm in Albuquerque. Uh, and today we have a special episode. It's a special episode because it's from 1605, which is not medieval. It's early modern. So we're taking that on. We're coming on down into the early modern period because uh, it's special and it's because we're doing this in honor of Guy Fawkes Day because we're like going to talk about Guy Fawkes. On November 5th, 1605, Guy Fawkes attempted to blow up Parliament with a bunch of other people, but his is the name we remember. It's not, he, he wasn't even the head of everything. He's just like, you know, the guy they caught first at any rate. So November 5th, the day that the barrels of gunpowder in the cellars underneath Parliament were discovered by Sir Thomas Knivet, and Guy Fawkes was seen leaving the cellar after midnight and got arrested. Fair enough. How did we get here? Fox was born in 1570 in the city of York. Probably, probably he was named after Sir Guy Fairfax. Guy is not a like really common name for Englishmen at this time. And his parents were Church of England, uh, which was at that time the state religion. Actually, it still is, I guess, but it's no longer as as uh, legislated as it was. More on that later. But his mother's family had been Recusant Catholics. And that means that they remained Catholic after they weren't supposed to be Catholic anymore. And Fox's stepfather, his father died when he was eight, and his mother got remarried to a Catholic. And Fox attended St. Peter's School, which had ties to Regisant Catholics, and he was from York. And uh, York, you know, Yorkshire and Lancashire were, like, there were Regisant Catholics at this time all around England, but... Yorkshire and Lancashire had the, the really high number. Yeah, so he was from York. When he was 21, uh, this was 1591, he went to fight on the side of Catholic Spain. He went to Europe to fight for Catholic Spain. Uh, the English defeat of the Spanish Armada had just happened a few years before in 1588, and the countries were still at war. And so that's not really a good move for an Englishman, but he did it anyway. And in 1603, he denounced King James as a heretic, and he denounced Scotland, and he asked the Spanish king for aid in a Catholic rebellion in England. He was using the name Guido at that point. He, uh, his name's Guy, but he, he sometimes is referred to as Guido Fox, and that's because at that time he was using this, the Italian version of his name for a while. It's like it's a more Catholic sort of name than Guy. I guess that's what that is. Anyway. 1604. In 1604, Spain had not been helpful, and so Fox joined up with a group of English Catholics who intended to assassinate King James and replace him with his daughter Elizabeth. She'd been named after her godmother, Elizabeth I, and she was at that point nine years old, and the conspirators figured that they could raise her as a Catholic. You know, sometimes we have stupid plots, and I don't know that this plot was entirely stupid. You know, some of it was fairly well thought out, but the part about raising Princess Elizabeth as a Catholic, kind of, I don't, I don't know about that. The leader of the group was Robert Catesby, who was from a Recusant Catholic family in Warwickshire. Uh, the group also included Thomas and Robert Winter, who were cousins of Catesby's, and Thomas Percy, who had become a Catholic. We're not sure when he did that. And he had gotten promises from James 
the first, they were oral, they weren't written down that James would favor Catholics, which turned out not to be true. James was not really hard on Catholics, but he wasn't favoring them. James was a staunch Protestant, though, and he, he had already at that point convened the Hampton Court Conference, which was working on what would become the King James Bible, which is, you know, the one that's quoted so often because it's like really got really great prose in it. Anyway, the conspirators, conspirators decided to assassinate the king and the government, because like get them all at once, by blowing up parliament. Aha! So they rented a room, they rented like a room, and it, it, was, it was in a cellar under par parliament. This was in 1605. And they brought in some gunpowder, like 36 barrels of gunpowder. Uh, that was in July of 1605. But the plague hit. And so Parliament was postponed until November 5th. Oh, and, and in August, you know, so the, so the gunpowder had to sit around and, and by in August that had deteriorated. They had to like replace it. That was sad. And Fox went to Europe to try and get support. And his name, because of this trip, his name ended up on a, um, a list that was sent to Robert Cecil, who had been Elizabeth's master spy. And was still working on these things, but it didn't get to him. Uh, he didn't get to Cecil until after November 5th. He was already being looked at at that point. Okay, now, the conspirators got worried because in the course of blowing up Parliament, they were going to blow up some Catholics. And so they were concerned about collateral damage, but, you know, they said they decided they would just do this anyway. Nevertheless, it was probably one of them who wrote a letter to William Parker, this was Lord Mount Eagle, telling him to stay away from Parliament, that he was a Catholic, stay away from Parliament. One of the conspirators was his brother-in-law, so maybe that was him. Um, and also, we think that the conspirator may have been, it's possible the conspirator was trying to undermine the plot because... Mount Eagle was Catholic, but he had made it very clear that he supported the government. So there's really no reason to think that what Mount Eagle was going to do is say, aha, I should stay away from Parliament. I cannot come to Parliament for I have a cold. I will see you later. He didn't do that. No, no. One of Mount Eagle's servants told the conspirators about the letter and they decided it was a hoax. And so they continued on with the plot. But Mount Eagle himself showed the letter to King James who then sent Thomas Snivet to check all, check things out. And very, very early in the morning of November 5th, before Parliament opened, Knivet found the gunpowder. Fox was arrested, leaving the cellar, and he gave his name as John Johnson, which wasn't his name. John Johnson. And he said... Johnson. I know. It's like... Anyway, his name was Guy Fox. It was not John Johnson. Anyway, he said he intended to blow up the House of Lords. This is all before he got tortured, he said this stuff. Uh, he said he intended to blow up the House of Lords and, quote, blow you Scotch beggars back to your native mountains, end of quote. So King James was really impressed by what King James called his Roman resolution, but he had him tortured anyway, and the torture was supposed to go from gentle to heavy. Uh, and after four days of torture, he revealed lots of stuff, including the names of all the conspirators and... So there you go. That was the end of all that. Eight of the conspirators, including Fox, were tried at the end of January 1606. All were found guilty of high treason and condemned to be hung, drawn, and quartered. And there really was a lot of evidence. This is not like one of those things where like Guy Fox was like not, like he, it's a, he was framed. Guy Fox was not framed. Guy Fox. None, none of these conspirators were framed. They actually did this. They had, there was Fox confession and Francis Tresham's confession, and that was under torture. But you know, Fox had said stuff before he got tortured, so there's that. Uh, and there was a conversation being, between Fox and uh, Winterfor. They were in adjacent cells, and uh, a spy was listening because Cecil had lots of spies, didn't he? And they were all over England. So please, we refer you to our podcast on Kit Marlowe, who was one of his spies getting murdered because of spyish sorts of reasons. At any rate, four of the four of the um, eight conspirators were executed on the thirty first of January, sixteen o six, and that would be Guy Fox, Thomas Winter, Ambrose Rockwood, who was from a Rapunzel family, and Robert Keys. 
And Fox was the last one to be hung, drawn, and quartered. And luckily for him, his neck broke when he was hung. And so therefore, he missed the slow strangulation and painful loss of body parts whilst alive, which was meant to be part of the execution. But they did those things anyway, even though he was dead. Fair enough. Aftermath. So that's why it's the 5th of November that Londoners were, after that, encouraged to carefully, this is part of the edict, very carefully have bonfires. <laughs> Don't set your barn on fire, but have a bonfire very, very carefully uh, to celebrate the kings not getting assassinated on that day. And um, the day was declared a day of Thanksgiving by an act of parliament, which this was rescinded in 1859, but Guy Fawkes Night is still celebrated. And added to the bonfire, added to the bonfire is, <laughs> now yeah, we might have to wait here. Are you gonna scream at yellow? <laughs> what are you doing? She's trying to get behind the curtain that I have in, on this, the side of yellow's cage where she can actually get to him and bite him. She's trying to get behind that. Yeah, what are you doing, Missy? I do see you, and I'm looking at you, yes. Guy Fawkes Night is still celebrated. Um, and uh, from about 1673, a guy, this is in quotes, a guy is added to the bonfires. There's an effigy, like, made with old clothes and a mask and whatnot. And it's from there that we get the term, you guys, the term um, moved from being from meaning somebody in old clothes, like such as the ones that are used to make the guy, to using to meaning just about anybody. So it's kind of like the terms come on down. But that's where we get you guys. That's why we say you guys. And as for the Catholics, uh, James gave us. I don't want you on this. I don't. James gave a speech to the House of Lords. <laughs> to the House of Lords and the House of Commons, uh, stressing the divine right of kings and the fact that this had been a, the deed of a few bad Catholics rather than all of the Catholics. But he took measures, he took measures to um, bring the Catholics under better control. In May, of 16, in May of 1606, Parliament passed an act by which any citizen could be forced to take an oath of allegiance to the king over the Pope James did not want the Catholics persecuted, however, uh, just made to leave the country if they wouldn't sign the oath. He told Cecil that persecution of other re religions is, quote, one of the infallible notes of a false church, end of quote. And under his successor, Charles I, there was a, like, there was a little Catholic revival, but the English Civil War, which the Puritans won and then beheaded Charles, was in large part spurred on by the tensions between the court, which had, you know, Catholic leanings, and the parliament, which had Puritan leanings, and so it's even further over than the Church of England. And so a lot of anti-Catholicism anti uh, went on during the Puritan regime, but then the monarchy got restored under Charles II, and the court, again, was leaning Catholic, and his son, James II, converted to Catholicism, but Parliament deposed him in favor of William and Mary, who were Protestants, and Mary was James's daughter. And in 1701, the law was established that no Catholic could inherit the throne, or anybody who was married to a Catholic could not inherit the, the throne. Although in 2013, that um, law was changed to allow monarchs to be married to Catholics. Now, although they still have to be Church of England. Now, Catholics in England for the state of like, like what it was like for Catholics in England from like the end of the 17th century to 1850, they had limited civil rights. Although in 1829, the Catholic Emancipation Act was passed by Parliament. And this was especially important for Ireland, which was still part of England at that point, um, because it wasn't 1922 yet. But at any rate, it repealed laws that heavily restricted Catholics in Ireland. In 1850, Rome reestablished the Catholic hierarchy, uh, the diocese, although the names of the diocese could not be those of the names of the diocese being used by the Church of England, although, of course, the Church of England diocesan names had been, were the Catholic names that before the Reformation, you know, like Canterbury and Peterborough and whatnot. And from the 19th into the 20th century, anti 
Catholicism declined. Migration of Irish Catholics into England really strengthened Catholic Church there, especially from the famine of 1845 to 1852, from then on. In fact, I was reading, uh, you know, in, in England, Irish people are never kind of referred to as, the, when you're, when they're dealing with like the immigrant pop population, they're never talking about the Irish, but the Irish are the biggest immigrant population in England, but mm. <laughs> why are we not surprised? And notable conversions, like, you know, surged from this time, Gerard Manley Hopkins, G.K. Chesterton, Graham Greene, Sigrid Sassoon, Edith Sitwell, Muriel Spark, Oscar Wilde, Evelyn Waugh, and of course there were some also notable Catholics, your beloved Tolkien. Tolkien's um, mother converted the family to Catholicism after um, her husband's death, and they suffered mightily for it. Her family disowned her and would not support the, her or the children. Yeah, anti-Catholicism declined, but did not disappear. Uh, and the Catholic Church in England now uh, allies strongly with the, with the Church of England. They do a lot of things together. I was at, uh, I forget where it was, but I was visiting some castle place, and there was a tomb, in, and, uh, and there was a chapel, and the chapel was, like, divided, so you could, like, step from, you know, there was the Catholic side and the Church of England side, but it was all there in the same place. Uh, this, it's really hard for us now to imagine and, and try to remember the depth of feeling between the Protestants and the Catholics. My own grandmother had relatives she never saw again after they became Protestants. And she was more than happy. You know, it wasn't just on their side. <laughs> she was more than happy to cut them out. She kind of was a wild person in general. We're in this country Catholic mission. It wasn't even a church. And they would sit. If the, if the priest was late to do mass, they would sit and wait for him for hours until he managed to get there. So that's what happened. On November the 5th, Thomas Knivet managed to keep Parliament from blowing up. And really, it would have, I mean, it was, um, since they'd replaced the gunpowder, Yeah, it was, it was going to be very bad. I have some data about how bad it would have been. Oh, do you? Let us have that. I have a wonderful book that nearly everything I'm going to tell you is from this fabulous book from 2005, published by Harvard University Press by Dr. James Sharp. It's called Remember, Remember, A Cultural History of Guy Fox Day. One of the very first things we're on page seven that he has in it is a estimate. In 2003, the University of Aberystwyth, so this Welsh university, mm -hmm. um, has a center for explosion studies, which I think is awesome. They did some analysis to figure out how bad the explosion would have been if it had gone off. So I'm gonna I'm gonna just quote from this, okay? Because it's pretty cool. The exercise as the scientist made clear, had to be an approximate one. Translating 36 barrels of gunpowder into an exact weight is difficult, as is making any definite comparison between 17th century gunpowder and modern explosives. Oh, of course. So there's a couple of caveats about, you know, we know that we know that we're having to make assumptions, do educated guesses. But they know what room it was in and yep. uh, and how close it would have been to uh, Parliament meeting itself. Okay. On this basis, so all of the stuff they did, mm -hmm. they calculated that Fox, if successful in his mission, would have caused structural damage within a radius of 500 yards. That's a quarter of a mile. All buildings within 40 yards would have been destroyed. Roofs and walls within a 100-yard, so 300-foot radius, would have collapsed. And even at 900 yards, roughly half a mile, windows would have been broken. The Palace of Westminster, Westminster Hall, Westminster Abbey, and the surrounding streets would have been obliterated. Whoa, even Westminster Abbey, I didn't realize it would have gone that far. Yeah, it is important to not underestimate the level of domestic terrorism that was, was aimed at. It's possible that the conspirators didn't, you know, because using gunpowder in this way is new mm -hmm. at this time, and certainly 
if anybody had been imagining that you could blow Parliament sky high, you wouldn't have been able to rent a storage room right under it. Right, because I don't think you could rent that room now. You definitely cannot. In fact, they have probably the oldest ongoing security screening, certainly in the West, because they still, before every parliament, send somebody down to check the basement. Oh, do they? I love that. I'm really kind of impressed with James I's role in this. He was the one who kept sending them back. No, something something is fishy. That's right. Yeah, they did go and didn't see everything seemed okay. And then he sent them back. Yeah. Sent him back, but he had dodged. There had been other assassination attempts before. Oh, had there? <laughs> this isn't his first rodeo. No wonder he's stressing the divine right of kings. And he also said, you know, obviously this was um, it was taught by a miracle because he's God, you know, because he's divine rights of kings. Yeah, yeah. Although what that says about what happens when you actually do get assassinated, which we know happens, uh, uh, the logic doesn't really hold. In James Sharp's analysis, November 5th becomes a historical fulcrum. Mm. a way of interpreting the past and a lens for interpreting events as time moves forward, at least for a couple hundred years. Mm. For a couple hundred years, it's part of this providential interpretation that God is clearly looking out for the English Protestants, and they have some evidence to to bolster that, right? Mary Tudor doesn't live very long, so she's not able to reestablish Catholicism. But Elizabeth lives a long time. The defeat of the Spanish Armada was seen as obviously divine intervention right the discovery of other plots so mary queen of scots myriad attempts to overthrow elizabeth other attempts against james even before when it became clear in the 1590s that elizabeth wasn't going to have a child and james was going to be her heir their plot started up against james there was one totally kooky one where they tried to kidnap him and they're going to hold him until he agrees to treat the catholics well like how do they think this is going to work i don't know right and why does one you know keep one's promise after that yeah, no, it's it's goofy. So for these people who live through it, November 5th is just part of this through line of God's providence for the English Protestants. But also as time moves forward, it becomes this lens through with a with through which things get interpreted. So after the great fire of 1666, there is a wild rumor that it was started by the Catholics on purpose. Huh. And by the way, there is rumors starting right from 1605 among the Catholic community that this was a false flag operation. Oh, right, right, right. It reminds me so strongly of everything around 9-11. Actually, even though the terrorism plot doesn't happen, the reactions to it remind me strongly of 9-11. You have this immediate, immediate conspiracy theory circulating that stays in Catholic circles for hundreds of years, that there's a, it's a false flag operation, that it's Salisbury arranging all of this so that he can do this um, humongous crackdown on the Catholics. It connects in with the William of Orange thing. When Charles II dies and the Catholic convert James II ascends and the English lords invite William of Orange to invade, his boats land on November 5th. Oh, do they? I didn't remember that at all. Absolutely do it on purpose. Absolutely. There's a lot of burning the Pope in effigy for those first 200 years, but not, you know, much less of Guy Fawkes. He actually kind of emerges as the figure in the, as like the central figure of the plot in the late 18th and early 19th centuries. And it is wacky what happens. It's just wild. So the bonfires, which were to celebrate the day of Thanksgiving. Uh, Yeah, the bonfires, absolutely. The fireworks, there's so much, so many fireworks. And also you have to have sausages. Uh Uh-huh. Yep. But and and the guy comes on in, but the guy was it was he called the guy? It, it was and but it was the pope. The the earlier ones you you do more of burning the pope in effigy. But at, as the enlightenment takes hold, it becomes de passé to feel quite this strongly about religion. Oh, I see. So the secular figure of guy steps in. Because it's not really that you you stop thinking bad things about the Catholics, but it becomes like not so, uh, not so, uh, what am I thinking? The educated people pride themselves on being a little bit more rational 
<laughs> oh, do they then? All right. <laughs> and not, just not feeling this strongly about religion in general. Like that's fine. That's fine for some, but we're the enlightened folk that are guided strictly by logic. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. What happens with Guy Fawkes in the 19th century is totally nuts. I absolutely did not expect this. There's this left turn. And there's this totally weird 90 degree into, into pantomime and farce. Hmm. He ends up on the stage as a figure of hilarity. It's so weird. But, but also partially November 5th becomes this day of youth hooliganism. So I guess maybe it's connected to that. It, it goes from being this very serious thing that is commemorating sidestepping this very serious threat. And then once that threat is perceived, I guess, to be receding, it becomes this thing that kids do. And there's this a novel so Guy Fawkes becomes a figure of sympathy in the 19th century oh I didn't know that isn't that isn't that wild he becomes an anti-hero and there's the 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 novels William Harrison um Ainsworth is probably the most like best known of this novel he's from Manchester and his book called Guy Fawkes and then he has one called the Tower of London he he has this whole set of books He's not really, he's not, well, he's a lawyer because his dad made him, but really he's a novelist. <laughs> and his, he's very sympathetic. Right towards the beginning, we're on like page six of the book. The state of the Roman Catholic Party at the period of this history was indeed most grievous. The hopes they had indulged of greater toleration on the ascension of James I had been entirely destroyed. The persecutions suspended during the first year of the reign of the new monarch were now renewed with greater severity than ever. And though their present condition was deplorable enough, it was feared that worse remained in store for them. It's, it, it surprised me a lot to see this level of, of sympathy with the Catholic persecution. The other thing about this book in particular that delighted me an awful lot is the absolute dripping review of it that Edgar Allan Poe writes. <laughs> this cracked me up to no end because it is not nice. <laughs> Poe did not like this book? No, he spends, this is the sort of review that honestly I am impressed that Ainsworth kept on writing after it because it's cruel. Well, maybe he just didn't think much of Poe. I sure hope he never actually had to read this review because it's, it is not nice at all. He, he's not satisfied with just going after Guy Fox. He starts way back at the beginning of Ainsworth's career and says that everything he wrote ever is crap. <laughs> he starts off with the first book, Rookwood. He goes on to the next book, Crichton. <laughs> which he calls turgid pretension, which I think is a ballsy move from the guy who wrote The Raven. <laughs> and, and Annabelle Lee. <laughs> and El Dorado, gaily bedight, a gallant knight in sunshine and in shadow, had journeyed long singing a song in search of El Dorado. Oh, come on. It's not good. I can do the, I can do the whole thing. <laughs> Oh my God, I won't though. So after excoriating his whole entire career, he goes after Guy Fox in particular. Guy Fox, the book now lying before us, and the latest completed production of its author is positively beneath criticism and beneath contempt. The design of Mr. Ainsworth has been to fill for a certain sum of money a stipulated number of pages. There existed a necessity of engaging the readers whom especially he now addresses, that is to say, the lowest order of the lettered mob. A necessity of enticing them into the commencement of a perusal. For this end, the title Guy Fox or the Gunpowder Plot was all sufficient, at least within the regions of Cockney. <laughs> As for fulfilling any reasonable expectations derived either from the Cap Abtadium title or from his own notoriety, we dare not say reputation, as a novelist, as for exerting himself for the permanent or continuous amusement of the poor flies whom he had inveigled into his trap, all this 
with him has been a consideration of no moment. He had a task to perform and not a duty. What were his readers to Mr. Ainsworth? What Hecuba to him or he to Hecuba? (laughs) No. I'm sorry to read so much, but it's hilarious. It is. The result of such a state of affairs is self-evident. (laughs) With his best assertions, in his earliest efforts, with all the goadings of a sickening vanity which stood him well instead of nobler ambition, with all this he could do, he has done, but little. And without them he has now accomplished exactly nothing at all. If ever, indeed, a novel were less than nothing, then that is the novel Guy Fawkes. To say a word about it in the way of serious criticism would be to prove ourselves as great a blockhead as its author. My dear sir, proceed and flourish. In the meantime, we bid you a final farewell. Your next volume, which will have some such appellation as The Ghost of Cock Lane, we shall take the liberty of throwing unopened out the window. Our pigs are not of the description called learned, but they will have more leisure for its examination than we. Ooh, it is so bitchy! (laughs) That is just, that's amazing. so mean! And and it's so instructive, right? He, He just cannot cope with the normies thinking that they should have books written for them. He's just like Nathaniel Hawthorne. I had no idea he was so much of a snob as Nathaniel Hawthorne. Who, you know, Nathaniel Hawthorne famously foamed at the mouth about Jane Austen and how popular her books were. The hordes of scribbling women. I did not know Poe was a giant snob. Well, you know, especially if you're going to, like, die of alcoholism in Baltimore. I mean, you really don't want to be... The thing is, Hawthorne, uh, Hawthorne can write... I didn't know this because I didn't know that he had pretensions to grandeur because his stuff is pretty popular. He writes detective stories. I had no idea. Oh my gosh. So what I, the rest of what I have for you is just sharp talks about at the beginning of the 20th century, there being misunderstandings about the origin as, as we've moved away from the purpose of November 5th, there starts to be confusion about where it came from it starts oh, really? to get, it starts to get which well, is not unreasonable it starts to get pulled in with halloween um you'll run into descriptions of it that talk about it as if it were halloween as and that it comes from this pagan holiday that it has the same kind of background as as Alan. wow which is pretty fascinating and because it really does not i mean the bonfires as celebration that shows up and lots of lots of different holidays throughout the year that you could associate with pagans and but, but no it was very specifically a thing which had it does not come from the distant past. But Thomas Hardy says this in The Return of the Native. So English people thought this. Yeah. Well, they're supposed to know it's about, you know, the king not blowing up. <laughs> and then he talks, of course, about how it's it's not, it's kind of fading away in England, being taken over by the import of American Halloween. There are still places that do it, but it's not, He he talks about how, um, he was a kid growing up in the 50s, and nobody celebrated Halloween at that point, and everybody celebrated Bonfire Night. And that he he rarely now sees little kids walking around. He sees a lot of trick-or-treaters, but not really kids on Bonfire Night asking for a penny for the guy. A penny for the guy. So that's where that comes from. So that they can go and get clothes to make things. Um, one, of the other, one of the other wacky things I have for you is that in the Ashmolean museum in oxford supposedly they have guy fox's lamp okay is this the one he was holding when he escaped from the cellar well the one he was holding when he was arrested yeah well he escaped for a minute before he was arrested yeah Yeah. (laughs) he got out of the cellar and how it got there is totally wild it's on the Ashmolean's website as Guy Fox Lantern. They they hedge a wee little bit on their on their website. Guy Fox is said to have been carrying this iron lantern when he was arrested in the cellars underneath the Houses of Parliament on the night of November fourth, fifth of um, sixteen o five. 
But how it got there is totally wild. It went in the possession after he was after he was arrested. A man named Peter Haywood was with Thomas Knivet. Peter Haywood was later, but not at that point, elected to the House of Commons. In 1640, he was the victim of an assassination attempt. A Catholic man stabbed him. Huh for reasons that are not clear to me, although I've dug around to try to find out. He is not well after that and dies 18 months later. Mm. And he passes the lantern, this thing that he's kept as a relic, he passes it off to his brother, who was a proctor at Oxford. And it's been at Oxford ever since, because what you do at Oxford is you put things in cupboards and you hold on to them. I'm actually willing to believe that story. That doesn't sound to me to be like out of the realm of probability the the part that wilded me out was the victim of an an, another assassination attempt in 1640 yes 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 but that doesn't really have anything to do with the provenance of the lantern oh no it's just that it's such a turbulent time you know that the that hundred years from 1540 to 1640 and really to 1660 that's a really turbulent time period in england so there's his lantern a person can see it at the ashmolean so we have a novel yep do we have operas do we have any operas you know i didn't find any operas but there's lots and lots of there's lots and lots of theater there's some interesting stuff with it coming to new england when uh during the 18th century not so much in 17th century colonial new england but there are big celebrations of pope day in boston in the 18th century and james sharp argues that the community organizing and the resistance to authority that is happening because the the authorities aren't loving the Pope Day celebrations. It's totally happening as a as a popular, you know, George Washington forbade his his men from participating in the Pope Day celebrations. So Dr. Sharp argues that that practice of civil resistance was an uh, important prelude to the revolution. Interesting. It teaches them how to organize. Mm-hmm. where they practice he doesn't think it's a coincidence that this stuff is all happening in boston and then the early stages of the resistance to the stamp act are happening in boston it's all like of a piece of the culture mm-hmm. i love this kind of history right because we have this idea that an event happens and it's always that we always think about it in the same way that there's a true history. Mm. There's a core of that with Guy Fox, right? There is this fact that happened, but the interpretation of that event has changed mightily over the 400 years and the role that it plays as we remember it. Yeah. Yeah. And so we get down to V for Vendetta. Yes. Yes, Guy Fox has now become this figure of resistance to authority. Mm-hmm. Oh, so anonymous, whereas the Guy Fox masks. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it, you know, showed up in V for Vendetta. It's just fascinating. I think it's, I, I just enjoy this kind of history so much. Yeah. And the thing about all these different interpretations that we're hearing is that it's like, yes, you know, the, the Catholics are downtrodden and, you know, and it's unfair. And yes, there is, a, this is certainly an act of resistance. As I say, it wasn't really a stupid plot. It just fell apart. Sharp thinks they got themselves in trouble. And I agree with him when they, they had too many people. They were doing okay when they had four or five, but once they had 13, that was too many people who knew. That's too many. It really is. Why did they need 13? I mean, what they, to carry around the 36 barrels of gunpowder? I mean, you need you need somebody to uh, rent the room. You need somebody to buy the gunpowder several times. Uh, you need people to transport it. You need somebody to lay the cord and be ready to light the match. But you don't need 13 people for this. The, the Earl of Northumberland was absolutely blameless, but Guy Fox was pretending to be Thomas Percy's servant while this was all going on. And the Earl of Northumberland had known Catholic sympathies because, you know, he's in the North. And he had promoted Thomas Percy to a position of authority. And he knew absolutely nothing about this, but he still spent 18 years in prison. I didn't know that. Because he was associated with Thomas Percy. They couldn't prove it, which is because it wasn't true. He had absolutely nothing to do with the plot. And you can't execute an Earl anyway, unless you have some 
you know, you got to have the receipts if you're going to execute an Earl. But he did spend 18 years in prison because of the lingering suspicion, because he had this connection with these guys. That's a big deal, right? To imprison an Earl. (laughs) Yeah, for 18 years. This was really important background for me for all of the stuff I bump into in reading about the 19th century and the resistance to giving Catholics any rights, which I was always really confused about, you know, reading 19th century history, because like you guys have been in charge for 300 years. What is your problem? Well, the problem is the continual and recurring, you know, it's not just the gunpowder plot. You have 1749, right? The, the Bonnie Prince Charlie plot, which is, and then you have James II. So you have all of these recurring, I was a little bit more sympathetic to the English government's conundrum with what do we do? (laughs) I have trouble going there, but I am glad that Parliament did not blow up, especially now that I hear that Westminster Abbey would also have been involved. But they're basically forced into giving that because of Daniel O'Connell, which I thought was interesting. I was really fascinated to read about how over the 400 years after Guy Fawkes Day, um, after the the gunpowder plot was was, um, discovered and prevented, how the celebration of the day becomes a political football. Anytime there is disagreement among the English, one of the things that is up for debate is who gets Guy Fawkes Day. So in 1640, right, when they depose Charles I? Yeah, depose is not really the word for cutting heads off, I think. Depose and then execute Charles I. Yeah, all right. There is there's a linear there's a linear sequence here, yes, okay. There is a claim on both for from both sides of that, the royalists and the parliamentarians to get to hold on to the celebration of 6 of November 5th. And the parliamentarians end up with it, not the royalists. How so? Because, like, oh, well, they didn't get blown up on November 5th. Because, you know, it's two pieces, right? It's Protestantism and it's royalism. And in 1640, those two things are in conflict. Right. So it's not at all obvious which one is going to end up with it, but it ends up the parliamentarians. And then in 1660, after the restoration, they have to do some kind of fast dancing to get it back. So then the royalists have it back? Yes. After that, it becomes, it goes back to being, you know, a royalist thing, but they, they kind of have to tap dance to, to put it back after having bad mouthed it for 20 years. Right. So I see how, I see. So when, um, when King James didn't get blown up, Parliament also didn't get blown up and they were being seen as a unit, except yes. for Mount Eagle, by the people who were going to blow them up. But then later they were not a unit. They were two different things. Okay, got it. And when they're fighting, you know, the the cultural prestige of the holiday was big enough that they wanted to both claim it. Yeah, I, I was fascinated by that. Now, you know, all through the Reformation, if you were like a person in England who was just living there and was not part of you know, the ruling classes, you would have to like, some some years you were supposed to be Protestant and some years you were supposed to be Catholic. Did that affect, did the, the going back and forth between the royalists and the parliamentarians, did that affect the regular common people who are like lighting bonfires on November 5th? Did they say to themselves, this is not about how King James was saved. This is about how parliament was saved or Basically, did they not care? In other words, how do you, when you take hold of the holiday, what does that mean for the celebration of the holiday? The class stuff really comes into sharp focus in the 19th century because the celebration of November 5th very much becomes a hooligan sort of holiday. And there's legitimate riots. And things are getting burnt down and and people are literally getting read the riot act by the officials to try to control things. And it's out of control in some places. Lewis in uh, Sussex is one of the places that has a long standing. So yes, this is actually one of the, the tensions over November 5th. Is it, It's not just about what does it mean? It's about who's celebrating it. Uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. And the original declaration says very carefully that you are supposed to have bonfires, but you're not supposed to burn anything down with them, and you should be careful where you light them and stuff like that. It's, it's very much originally an upper-class holiday where they're trying to get everybody else on board with the idea, whew, this was good, this was great, we sidestepped this. Whichever it was, parliament or king. 
Yes. And then in the 19th century, it becomes a lower class kind of place to go out and be naughty. There's all kinds of incidents of middle class people being irritated and trying to get the cops to show up, the authorities, not not the police at this point, to show up and do something about all of the young men who are coming and breaking down their fences and carrying them off for firewood. And the authorities are like, we are outnumbered. (laughs) No, I'm so sorry. We're all celebrating the day that the king didn't blow up. And so we have to steal all your fences. Okay. Yeah. Because that's not what they're celebrating. It's just his just become a bonfire night. And there's a guy, but it's just, it it doesn't mean Guy Fox even. It's just a guy. Interesting. But then there's the, the, now there's the rhyme that we all love. um, Remember, remember the 5th of November, gunpowder, treason, and plot. I see no reason that gunpowder treason should ever be forgot. So there's that rhyme. Do you know where that comes from? He talks about it. Um, He talks about learning it as a child in the 50s. Let's see if we can, let's see if we can hunt this down. I actually, yeah, you would have thought that this was something he would talk about in this book. Um, Let's see if we can find it. Where does it show up? Oh, it goes on. It's longer. Yeah, I, I knew it has more, but yeah, it may well be early. I don't know. There, there are woodcuts really early on. There is a, um, a hot off the presses, 1606 Latin history of the gunpowder plot, which is then translated almost instantly into English verse. Mm. It's quite dreadful. I only read pieces of it. Okay. That rhyme is found in the Roud Folk Song Index, which was... Made in, okay, which is a combination of the broadside index, which would be printed sources before 1900, and a field recording index. And so we know it dates from before 1900. Yeah, this, the poem of the week shows it as circa 1870. But there is this point at which that gets invented and since it's saying, remember, remember the 5th of November, I'm wondering if really that's what it's about is please do not forget what the hell we're burning the guy for. It mattered. It mattered. The king did not blow up. I don't know. You know, of all the things I should have been looking for this, um, <laughs> I wonder if it shows up in some of those 19th century plays where he's all over the freaking place. Mm. The thing as the basis for pantomimes really threw me for a loop. Uh, pantomimes, those those are what, the hilarious plays that you do at Christmas? Uh-huh. Um. I was not expecting Fox to be turned into a harlequin and Robert Catesby becomes Pantaloon and now it, it's a farce. What? Well, I mean, it's a long time ago that it happened. And so the king didn't blow up, parliament didn't blow up, and it happened a long time ago. It would make sense that eventually it would lose its uh, power, but still not forgotten. There is a whole bunch of media I didn't actually look at. And it's it's still showing up. It's showing up in, there was a 2004 miniseries with Robert Carlyle, Robert Carlyle as King James and Michael Fassbender as Guy Fawkes. Oh, there's some BBC stuff that was done calling it Gunpowder 511, wanting to point out the connections. This was this was fun. This was fun to to look at. It's a, it's one of those things again that that has been that I have always heard about, but not had it not really looked at. So it was it was really good to look at it um, because it's it's just huge. I really was not aware that it had been brought to the English colonies. No. Though it makes sense, it would have been, been, yeah. Yeah, I like it because I'm very fond, as you know, of stupid plots. And and, uh, and and it turned out that this was not a stupid plot. It really, James is the self-rescuing princess here because he refuses, you know, his guys are like, yeah, yeah, we checked. It's fine. He's like, no, check again. I don't, I don't have a good feeling about this. So that's our crime for this particular episode. It was domestic terrorism that did not get pulled off and which we still commemorate every 5th of November. I think that's fair. It's a big, big, giant plot that would have changed the world. It's, it is actually fair to think of it as a fulcrum of history because this is one of these places where the world would have been very, very different if James I had decided to, to just call it a night. Oh, yeah, they checked. It's fine. The world would have been very, very different if the if that gunpowder had gone off. Yeah, it certainly would have. I don't really, I I don't think really that 
little Princess Elizabeth getting raised as a Catholic was actually going to happen. I, you know, so like what happens after you blow up Parliament and the King? I don't think that's really well thought out. So as far as stupid plots go, that would be part of it. Well, for sure, right? It basically moves up, you know, 1640 by by 35 years. Yeah. But to add, but the particular plot itself concerning the gunpowder, that actually was well thought out. It, it just got sabotaged. There's a real interesting book that somebody needs to write about the discovery of how gunpowder can be used for domestic terrorism. Mm. We also have on our list the first um, major assassination that happens with a handgun. Oh, which one is that? Because that also is fitting into this things we can do with gunpowder that we couldn't do before. And it changes everything. It changes personal security. It changes building security. It's just, it's a fascinating sort of moment in history where they realize, holy crap, we can do serious damage. So yes, it's a real, it's a real actual crime and I'm glad we covered it. It was a real actual crime. Yes. A real actual crime. Some of the things we cover would not be considered crimes now, but this was a crime then and it is a crime now. And I'm glad we talked about it. Well, the next thing that we're going to talk about is also really a crime. No kidding. That's in York, England, 1190, when the Jews of York were massacred at Clifford's Tower. So that's what we're on next time. It was a crime then, it's a crime now. Okay, that sounds... I don't really want to use the word good, but let's try interesting. So this has been True Crime and Evil, where the crimes are just like they are today, only with less technology. <laughs> I don't know, is that less technology? 36 barrels of gunpowder, I guess. Oh yeah, because you use plastic now. Yeah, right, 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 right. You don't need nearly as much. Uh, like I said, we usually, so with less technology... Uh, we can be found at Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and all the places where the podcasts are hanging out. And we are at truecrimemedieval.com. True Crime Medieval is all one word, where there's a link to the podcast and show notes and transcriptions and little blurbs with pictures. And you can leave comments. And we'd love to hear from you. Please let us know if you have any um, medieval crimes that you think we should look at. And as you can see by this episode, sometimes we move outside of the Middle Ages. We could even move outside of Europe, but we haven't done that yet. So, And uh, so that's it for us. Bye. Bye.